Do you ever do you ever feel like you don't measure up when it comes to this whole Jesus thing? Do you ever feel like maybe I don't know, a fake Christian? And do you ever look at your life and and wonder like why do I keep doing the things that I actually hate? Why am I drawn to something that I actually hate when it comes to temptation? Why is the church, or church in general, the last place people, broken, struggling people, run to? Because often when people are in some sort of struggle, we avoid other Christians, we withdraw. And I think the reason that might be is there's a general misconception that the church is a place for people who have all their stuff together. But we figured this out, right? Novation Church, we don't have all our stuff together. And we're going to be open and honest and authentic that we are a work in progress, that we are the imperfect following the perfect Savior who is transforming us. This misconception that the church is for people who have all their stuff together, that's not in the Bible. Every famous person, character in the Bible that God used outside of Jesus was, had serious flaws and failures. That's what makes me trust the Bible, is it's not trying to paint this picture of superhero people, but of people like you and me that struggle in their daily life and struggle trusting God. I thought about Adam and Eve. They had lived in perfection. They failed. Noah failed. Abraham, Moses, David was a man after God's own heart, and yet he committed adultery and then had the, the woman's husband killed. This is King David, right? This is from his line comes Jesus. And then there's the Apostle Peter in the New Testament, right? He talked a big talk, but when it push came to shove, he denied that he even knew who Jesus was. Then there's the Apostle Paul who was a religious terrorist who thought he was doing God a favor by snuffing out Christians in the church and persecuting, and yet he got transformed into the apostle of love, the apostle who became God's mouthpiece to take the gospel to the known world at the time. And we're in a series right now in the book of Romans, which was authored by the apostle Paul. We've titled it, Not Ashamed, because he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. So we've been going through this chapter by chapter, and today we're going to find ourselves in Romans 7. At the end of World War II, we, we, they called it D-Day, when the Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy and, and started setting captives free and all of that. World War II was declared over. But for the following year, there were still battles going on in various places where uh, the enemies of the Allies' forces were still trying to, to come back and, and just still terrorize and, and kill people and so forth. They weren't giving up. But then finally there comes what we call V-Day, where total victory now was understood and there was no more battles going on. So you had a war that was declared over and won, but it took a year of battles to get to the ultimate victory day. 
I think that's a perfect illustration of what the Apostle Paul is saying in the book of Romans. Jesus won the war against, for, for us against our enemies of sin. He nailed it to the cross of death. He defeated death by submitting himself to death and then rising from the grave, never to die again. So death for the believer just becomes a doorway into the eternal presence of God. But then he defeated also the powers of darkness in that he stripped their authority away. So he defeated that. So, but but we're, that's, that's our D-Day was the finished work of Jesus. V-Day will be when Jesus returns and sets everything right. There will be no more war, no more disease, no more sin. It will be total victory. We're in between the times, is the experience that we have right now as Christians. And so the battle, how do you, how do you, how do you fight a battle in a war that's been won? That's what Romans 7 is all about. What is the battle that we have in a war that's been won? I'm going to read to you Romans 7, 14 through 25, and I'm going to read it out of the message translation. I don't always use the message, but I think it's very colorful and helpful, uh, especially in what I'm going to read in the passage we're going to talk about this morning. Paul says this. See if you can relate. I can anticipate the response that is coming. I know that all God's commands are spiritual, but I'm not. Isn't this also your experience? Yes, I'm full of myself. After all, I've spent a long time in sin's prison. What I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way, but then I act another, doing things I absolutely despise. So if I can't be trusted to figure out what is best for myself and then do it, it becomes obvious that God's command is necessary. But I need something more. For if I know the law, but still can't keep it, and if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Parts of me covertly rebel, and just when I least expect it, they take charge. I've tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but I'm pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. Can you relate? For, we've got to be honest and say, yeah, that's, that's our, all of our experience. But this is Paul, the Apostle Paul, Saint Paul, sharing this. Kind of makes me feel good. If Paul struggled, then 
hey, who am I to think that, that, that I'm not going to struggle or you're not? We can relate to this. And I think what we can relate most to is we hate our sin because I really believe when someone follows Jesus, we learn to, to hate things that are destructive for ourselves and others. We, we learn to hate our sin, but the harder we try in our own strength, you find yourself struggling more. That's what he's talking about here. So every battle, if we're going into battle, every battle needs a battle plan. You need to have some sort of plan to, to attack the problem, so to speak. So what is the battle plan? I believe in Paul's um, struggles, he gave us a battle plan on how to, to deal with the battle within. And the first is this, refuse to pretend. Refuse to pretend that there's not a struggle. Refuse to pretend that there's not an inner battle, a tug of war between my flesh and, and the spirit, between wanting to do good and wanting to do bad. There's a tug of war in all of us, so we got to refuse to pretend. He said this in 15 and 16, my own behavior baffles me, for I find myself not doing what I really want to do, but doing what I really loathe. The word battle is a word that describes how most Christians feel and live, but few often admit it. Few often admit we stay in our own little world and our own little struggle rather than, I got issues, I got struggles going on. Because real Christians, you know, don't struggle. But an authentic walk with, with Jesus is messy at times. Sometimes it's messy. You don't have to look too far in Scripture or around this room to know we all have struggles in different ways, but we still have those struggles. Ask Peter if the, uh, an authentic walk is messy at times. And here's the good news, really good news. Jesus is not repelled or discouraged by your struggles. He actually is passionately pursuing each one of us, freeing us from the power of sin in our life and freeing us to walk a life of joy and peace that he emulated when he walked in the flesh in a body just like you and I. He is our rabbi, he is our teacher, and he is the power source for all of us. By embracing the battle, we confess that following Jesus is anything but neat and clean. Um, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I talk to people who get housekeepers, cleaners to come to their house maybe once a week, twice a month. And you who do that, I bet you, you straighten up your house before the housekeeper comes. You straighten it up so that somehow you don't look like a slob to your house cleaner when their job that you're paying them is to clean your house and straighten up your house. Am I right? Am I meddling in somebody's business right now? It's true. We do that with Jesus. Jesus, I'll clean myself up, and then you'll really love me. Well, I'll clean it up. You won't know how bad it really is. Jesus, I'll straighten up, put the magazines here, and put the pillows right on the couch. That's the job of the house cleaner. Jesus is taking responsibility with our participation in transforming us, 
from the inside out. In a war that's been won, there's still the battle. The battle is God's spiritual workshop for growth. God is working in the middle of those struggles. When you think to yourself, how in the world did I do that again? How did I find myself saying the very thing that I said I wasn't going to say? And you find yourself doing that. Here's the truth, too. This isn't heaven. And we are in a lifelong journey of being conformed to the likeness of Jesus and how we think, act, and speak. And we never arrive this side of heaven. So the pressure's off to be perfect. We follow the perfect one. So, refuse to pretend, and then secondly, reject the extremes. What do I mean by that? The extremes are, there's two extreme possibilities on how we can walk out this battle, how we deal with our, our messiness. There's, there's extremes that don't work. Paul said this again, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am fleshly sold into bondage to sin. For I do not understand what I am doing, for I am not practicing what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. However, if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law that the law is good. But now, and by law, he means the laws of Moses, morally and ceremonially. But now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that good does not dwell in me, that is, in my flesh. For the, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want to do, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I do the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. That's kind of a trip. Almost sounds like he's making an excuse. It's just the way I am. It's the way my dad was. It's been passed down to me. It's just the way I am. But I don't think that's at all. He's he's not making an excuse. He's rejecting extremes of how do I deal with this inner battle that goes on. I'm going to give you two words that define the extremes. The first one is the word license. The word license. Sometimes people think grace is a license to sin. Remember in in Romans 5, we talked about the, the, the amazing thing that Jesus did for us and what he means for us. And almost sounds like it's too good to be true. So when it comes to license, it's like, well, um, you know, I'm under grace, so I can live how I want to. Or it's being indifferent to sin. It's being indifferent to fighting sin or just throwing our hands up and saying, this is how I am. Paul knew that that was, question was coming after Romans 5, and he said in Verse 1 of chapter 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Paul gave a big, huge heck no. Heck no, are we to continue in sin to somehow glorify grace? Grace is not a license to sin, but it's the power to save us and transform us. We're told in the book of Titus that the grace of God in Jesus has appeared to all people. And it, grace, teaches me to say, un, to say no to ungodliness. Not my willpower, it's grace that teaches us. 
I've never met a person who really is following Jesus that uses grace as a license to sin. Never, never met anybody that uses grace as a license to sin. The second extreme is the complete opposite, and it's the word legalism. Legalism is where you and I try to be right with God by our do's and don'ts and thou shalt's and thou shalt not. It's being trying to be in right standing with God, righteous before God by what Paul is calling the law. The law of Moses is beautiful. The, the Old Testament is beautiful. People often say, well, you know, the law was just, it's just this whole legal conversation. The law ordered society for the Jewish people in a pagan world. So Paul's not saying the law is bad. Just don't stop there. Keep going because the law leads us to Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the law. If we refuse to admit the battle within, then we're going to try to fight this battle that, that, that we're, you know, denying inside of us outwardly. And how does that work? Usually ends not good for, for any of us. Paul told the Galatian church, he said, if following the law is how people are made right with God, then Christ did not have to die. In other words, following the rules, like if you could follow the rules rightly, then Jesus didn't have to come to set us right. But the fact that he did says we were helpless on our own. Legalism is Christ plus rules. It's, yes, Jesus, but let me add all these things that you have to do as well. Rules and knowledge of rules cannot change anyone. I hope you've found that out. I know I have. The law points out sin. The purpose of the law or, 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 the, or the law itself is to be a mirror, not a ladder. When you use the law and rules to try to climb to God, we're going to fail every time. It's not the purpose. Let me give you an example. This morning, the majority of you got in front of a mirror, right? And if you got in front of that mirror and you saw a little, little dirt on your face, do you take the mirror off the wall and wash the dirt off your face with the mirror? No. You, you, the mirror points out, I got dirt on my face. I go get soap and water to clean my face. The, the law points out there's something wrong. Scott, you're not doing it right. This isn't the way of God. But I don't wash with the mirror. I wash with the finished work of Jesus in our our in my life. Legalism always creates a problem. It does. When we're trying to be good little boys and girls before God, it creates a problem. And Paul diagnosed this in Romans 7, 5, when he says, for when we were in the flesh, the sinful desires aroused, strong word, by the law were active in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. The law arouses the sinful nature. Those of you who have known me for a long time, bear with me on the story that I'm going to tell because you've heard it a few times. But there's many in this room that have not heard this story that I think really illustrates what Paul's trying to say. So, 25 years ago, we 
I took a youth group on a mission trip to Scotland. And we did some church work. It was great. And on our way home, we had to fly out of Paris. So we took the train from Scotland to London. And then we got on what's called the channel, right? The channel starts about a mile out on the land. And then it's this tunnel where they dug underneath to the bedrock, underneath the English channel. So when you're in that train, there's a whole lot of ocean up above you. And we went out, we came out on the other side in France. Side note, this kid that I was sitting next to me on the train, I'm already claustrophobic knowing that we're under the ocean, right? We're about here and we're under the bedrock and he broke wind right next to me. And I'm like, bro, are you serious, man? I've already told you I'm claustrophobic. And that one smelled like Glenwood Springs. Like that was terrible, <laughs> frustrating. So I got through that and we get to the other side and we get to Paris, right? We didn't have any church work to do. It was just more sightseeing. And um, so I go, we all go to the Eiffel Tower. And you get to the top of the Eiffel Tower it's so cool to see Paris, the city. It's, it's a sight to behold. Now, for some reason, I was by myself or away from the group. And I'm looking like, wow, God, this is cool. And all of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, I see this sign. And it says, don't spit. No spitting. In English and in French. I don't speak French, but I saw it in English. Do not spit. And I'm standing there, my mouth started watering. <laughs> I started thinking, hmm, I wasn't even thinking about spitting. Now I really want to spit, like that sounds fun. That's a long way down there, Jack. So I look to the left and to the right, got it all ready, Fafoom. and I watched it <laughs> down at the end. I wasn't thinking about spitting until they told me I couldn't do it. In, in, uh, when I, years ago, when I sold insurance, there was a, a, a thing that they showed about signs telling people what they can and can't do. And there was a resort in Mexico where the decks of the hotel rooms were close enough to the ocean that you could throw a rod out and catch fish from every part of the backside of the hotel. And they said that the rooms that had a sign on the deck that said no fishing had 40 to 50 broken windows underneath them from catch your fish and boom, it hits the window and shatters it. The rooms that did not have a sign that said no fishing had like four or five broken windows where some true fishermen said, I'm fishing right here. But the people were like, hmm, no fishing? Can we rent some rods? Let's get those up here quickly. It's just the way that we're wired. The law arouses the sinful nature, right? If you're trying to avoid food, all you think about is food. If you're trying to avoid that donut, you're walking in Sunday morning, I'm not going to eat a donut, all of a sudden you got two in your hand. It's just, it's, it's the way that, that we're wired. Thirdly, in our battle plan, is remember we're unfinished. We have to remember we're unfinished. 
Last week we talked a little bit about this, that there are tenses to our salvation. There's a past tense of our salvation, I was saved. And we call that, or Paul calls it, justification. God aligned us right with himself through what Jesus did and when we put our faith in that. There's a present experience of salvation in that I'm being saved. We call that the process of sanctification. It's where who I already am in Jesus, I'm learning to live out practically in my everyday life. And then future tense is I will be saved. Paul calls that glorification. There's coming a day after the resurrection, and we die and go to heaven, where you're not going to be able to sin anymore. I'm really looking forward to that. I don't know about you. There won't be any sickness. Our bodies won't break down. We'll all be really good looking. I mean, who knows? It's just going to be, it's going to be good, whatever it is. The same grace that saves us, justifies us, is the same grace that sanctifies us, present tense, and the same grace will glorify us. The writer to the book of Hebrews in Hebrews 10, 14 says it this way about sanctification. For by that one offering, he forever, Jesus, made perfect those who are being made holy, who are in this process of being sanctified. He made us perfect, and now he's perfecting us. Like, that's kind of weird, but it's the truth. He perfect, he's already made us perfect, now he's perfecting us. He's into that process. The finished product to God is a done deal for you and I. It's this process that we're learning here. We're unfinished. We haven't arrived. In Romans 8, 29 through 30, Paul puts it this way. He says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's sanctification. So that he might be firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified, past tense. Those he justified, he also glorified, future tense. In between justified and glorified is what we're experiencing right now in sanctification. It's so important that you and I distinguish between sanctification and justification, because if we make sanctification, if we don't distinguish them, then we're wondering every day if we're right with God because of our do's and don'ts and things that we find ourselves in. Man, you've been justified. You're made right with God through faith in what Jesus did. Now we're learning how to live that out. And there's nobody that's more justified than somebody else. The Apostle Paul wasn't more justified than you and I. But there are different stages of sanctification where somebody is learning to think, act, and speak a little more like Jesus every day. So don't look at your neighbor and say, I'm more sanctified than you. That's not what I meant. <laughs> Lastly, the most importantly... The battle plan, rely on Jesus. Rely on Jesus. Fighting the battle involves asking the right question. And don't ask the question, what can I do to overcome my issues? You'll struggle all the time. And don't ask the the, the question, how can I overcome my issues? Here's the right question. Who is, will overcome my issues for me and with me? That's the right question. It's exactly how Paul ended this. He said, after he goes through this whole thing about his inner struggle, 
He says, wretched man that I am. He's dejected at this point. Who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I, myself with my mind in serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Two things on this. Trust the finished work of Jesus. You want to rely on Jesus? Don't trust in what you do for Jesus. Put 100% of your trust in what he did for you. What he did for you in defeating your enemies of sin, death, and the evil one. When Jesus was on the cross, what was the last thing he said? It is finished, right? It is finished. And then in relying on Jesus, rely on the Holy Spirit. Rely on the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you've had this experience, but I don't need willpower. I need real power. My power is not strong enough. But the power from the Holy Spirit. You think about how Jesus handled temptation. Don't ever forget when Jesus came into this world in the incarnation, he had a body, flesh and blood, and was tempted in the exact same ways that we are, yet without sin. Same temptations, right? How did he battle temptation? Well, first of all, with the Word of God. He, every temptation in the desert, he said, it is written. And then Jesus walked in the power of the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit. And here's the really good news for you and I. The same book, Romans 8, says that the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us. How many know that's good news? We have everything we need to fight this battle. We have everything we need for life and godliness. We don't need to ask him for more. We need to access what he's already given us as his. Jesus told the disciples, he said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You remain, abide in Jesus, he's going to bear fruit. What the heck was that? (laughs) Okay, is that an airplane? (laughs) Threw me off a little bit. (laughs) I was in the zone and got out of the zone, but I'm getting back. Apart from him, we can do nothing. We can't. He's just saying, you got to remain connected to me. There was a great German reformer named Martin Luther. Not Martin Luther King Jr., but Martin Luther. He was a reformer, at the, and God used him to reform the known church at the time to get back to saved by grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and get away from some of the misuses uses of the church and the things that they were doing wrong. I love Martin Luther. I read in his biography. He struggled. Like, he, he became a priest, a monk, thinking that that was going to get rid of this inner battle. If I just join the ministry, I'll, uh, I won't have this inner struggle anymore. And it actually made life worse for him <laughs> to the point where he, he thought God hated him and he wasn't sure how he felt about God as he's in the monastery, as he's, as he's becoming a priest. Well, they gave him a, the scriptures to read 
And he was reading through Romans 1 one day, and he read our verse where it says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel in chapter 1, for it is the power of God unto salvation. The just shall live by faith. And it, his heart leapt that, wow, Jesus did all this for me. I'm not working for Jesus. He's the one that did this for me. And he learned to rely on Jesus. Martin Luther would, would, was not only a great theologian, he also would write hymns, some famous hymns. He wrote Away in the Manger that we sing at Christmas time. And he would take like old bar pub tunes and he would just put different words to them. And one of his famous uh, hymns is called A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And one of the little stanzas says this, did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dusk ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabbath, his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. It's his battle. He, he said, I'm going to fight your battles for you. I'm going to defeat your enemies. Rely on me then participate with me in letting me change you. Would you stand with me? We're going to close with a song. And the song is called Cornerstone. And it's all about relying on Jesus and what he has done for you. Would you just take the next few minutes as we sing this and engage with Jesus with all your heart, with all your mind, and allow him to speak to you and to give you courage to face what's next. Oh 
As we go from here today, thank you for a fresh infilling of your spirit, hope, and God, that um, we're relying on you, Lord Jesus. You are our everything. So, Lord, we agree with you today that you are Savior, you are Lord, and apart from you, we can do nothing. We can't fight this battle in our own strength. So we're going to stop doing that. We're going to rely on you and trust you. Thank you for one another. Thank you for this group of folks that just want to love and serve you by serving one another. Jesus, we trust you. Thank you for what you're doing in our lives and in our church. In Jesus' name, amen.